Good evening, everybody, and uh, you're most welcome to keep your analytical mind also open. It's perfectly fine, <laughs> and have as many questions as possible. And uh, thank you, Govind, for such a beautiful flow of love. Actually, um, after the wonderful things you said, speech strikes as an anomaly because one would like to drown in that love and become that love. And if one becomes one with that love, there is no need to know anything more because one becomes all things. It is at the very core of this universe. The very birth of the universe, last few days we have been speaking about it, that um, the whole universe emanated, it came out, it has emerged out of the chaos of inconscience because of the labor of a love that far transcends not only our senses but also our knowledge. The seers called it delight. It has been, there is over a period of time, there is a kind of uh, spiritual thought which has disconnected our, us from ourselves. I say from ourselves because it denudes us of everything except some pure Atman which is somewhere out there, remote or within in our depths and all else is done away with as a vanity or vanities, an illusion, a bad dream or a good dream depending upon the dreamer. But who is the dreamer and what is this dream we want to know? We are asked to wake up from the dream, but who set us to dreaming and for what purpose? There's a little story of um, an English poet who took shelter in, uh, you know, one of the um, farmhouses because it started to rain, he was in the countryside and uh, he didn't know whom to contact, see, he knocked at the door. Those were days when people trusted strangers. Now you knock at a door and you're not sure what response you'll get. <laughs> but sure enough, he was asked three questions. Who are you? Where are you coming from? Where are you going? So of course he gave an answer. But whole night he kept thinking, are these the answers? Where am I? Where am I come from? Where am I going? Some of the simplest things of life are so difficult to answer. Things we take for granted. Yesterday we were speaking of, yesterday or day before, the water we drink and taste, the flower we smell, the things we touch. Why is it that we experience them in this way and not in another way? These are everyday experiences of life and we really, it's an enigma, it's a great enigma, this great sensible world, this vast these farthest reaches of space, the endlessness of time, the boundlessness of space. Who sent them at, into motion? What is that force that is impelling it? Whose one single breath is not over or exhausted with almost 20 billion years and its universe is still expanding. It is said that one day this force will contract and the whole thing will sink. It literally means that in one single breath you know, billions and billions and billions of years. We cannot imagine. 
we breathe 18 to 20 times in one minute. Whose breath is it? Whose breath is still going on and creating the many systems? And we every day see it, experience it and forget about it. It's an enigma. This great world is an enigma. A greater enigma is that which we don't sense, don't touch, don't feel and yet it's so intimate and real. Uh, Govind was referring to this love. People often ask me, uh, they ask many persons and each one has their own answer that you know you are coming from Sri Aurobindo Ashram Pondicherry. Uh, tell me something about miracle that happens there. You know, we have this idea of penchant for miracles. Every day life is a miracle. The thing I touch is a miracle. What I taste is a miracle. What I smell is a miracle. If you look at it with the eyes of wonder, not with the eyes of um, the limited intellect which is proud of, you know, I know it all because I have read some books. We really don't know. The scientists don't know. True, the true scientists are truly very, very humble because they know that they don't know. So, I have a very simple answer that, you know, it's really a miracle that... Um, I am in love with someone whom I have never seen with these physical eyes, never uh, met with, you know, this physical body, <coughs> never conversed with, with this physical mind. And yet, if one were to weigh that love on one side and all the love of all the people and all the universe on the other, this drop of this love would weigh heavier. Of course, I am referring to Shirvind and the mother. It's, it's an enigma. Why, why the heart? You know, you spoke about bhakti. How come one loves something which one has not sensed with the physical senses? It's a greater enigma than the sensible world. Sensible world is an enigma, but it's a greater enigma. But there is a yet greater enigma. The greatest of all enigma. How does this, which is so insensible, so immaterial, get so real, so intimate, the very stuff of our being, and this which is so sensible, so real, so gross, we call it reality. Often we say the practical realities of the world. What is the relation between the two? That is the greatest of all enigma. <coughs> Friends, it was given to Sri Aurobindo to rediscover this lost knowledge. The relationship between this which is in our very depths as the burning fount, as the splendor, as the sun of truth and this ever-changing, ever-shifting, ever-moving, ever-unstable, giving the sense of stability, caught in the flux and flow of things, these numberless, countless events and images and scenes that appear before us, it was given to Sri to rediscover and reveal it to us in modern times and in a language that we can understand. I use the word rediscover because it, this knowledge existed in ancient times. The Vedas speak of this great being who is hidden and how he brings forth countless system of worlds out of himself. We are aware only of one physical world. But this is not the only world. There are worlds beyond worlds beyond worlds beyond worlds. And even if I were to speak of it a million times, it won't exhaust the number of system of worlds that exist and yesterday we were speaking of this simple phrase in Ishupanishad Jagat Tyam Jagat motion within motion and this knowledge was there in the Vedas over a period of time it got lost and covered 
and there are debris of intellectual analysis which turn this tremendous and powerful body of knowledge, very practical, very real, into a mass of intellectual speculation and dry philosophy, you know, so much so that today Veda is, Vedanta has become, you know, oh, don't talk about this philosophy. And people keep it for the end of their life, not realizing that actually it is most useful at the very beginning of life because it's the one thing which is going to help us in everyday life, even in the most, most outward things. We go to a shop and we ask for a piece of cloth. We want to know what is its make. But this piece of cloth, we don't want to know what is its make. Take it for granted. The doctor knows. And we put ourselves into the hands of the doctor. He knows a little bit, very little. When we look at the same thing from the point of view of Veda, in Indian thought, you know, this knowledge was called Ayurveda. It's also a kind of knowledge. How this matter is formed, it's something amazing. If we look at it, it's really, um, it goes beyond the limits of what we can even comprehend or hold within us. So also when we go to a shop and pick up an instrument or an equipment, we want to know how it functions and, you know, what what how to put it, 110 volt or 220 volt and all kinds of things. We rush out to the world, we don't know what forces move it and you know, uh, where to plug in, how does the energy come in. We again take all this for granted. Nobody teaches us how to live. There is a science of life and there is an art of life and there is a commerce of life. We all think we know it. The science of life deals with all the forces and energy that constitute this world and move it. The objective world. The art of life deals with the subjective side which is so real and yet we know so little about it. Every day we think and we don't know why we think. If one were to ask why this particular thought came into your head, you would think and think and think. Kenupanishad starts with this question, what lets thought reach its mark? We don't know why these thoughts arise into us. And we move in the sway of one of these thoughts and we do something and we say, I, I, you know, I, I am free and this is my free thought. Am I really free? Could I bring a thought into existence by my own freedom? Could I say this moment I am going to think thus? That would be some kind of freedom and mastery if you like. But thoughts occur, they drive us in thought currents. And we are driven like an you know, animal and we say, this is my free thought and I am choosing. <laughs> but who is choosing, who has set thought onto its errands as the Kain Upanishad says, Kain Prishitam. It gives a very powerful answer, of course, in one line. That which impels the mind and knows the mind, but that which cannot be known by the mind. It, of course, is a very cryptic verse. So, we feel, we have changes of mood. We are very fine people in the morning. Sometimes we are very bad people in the morning, depending on how many hours we slept. Yes, and a cup of coffee. We are a different person in the afternoon. We were just about, you know, maybe half an hour back. 
very very different kind of a person so what is really changing these subjective states within us we take it for granted or we have some set answers quite naturally and you know these answers come from all kinds of quarters and we trust them and actually you know we have lend our faith to a wrong kind of knowledge <laughs> we believe that whatever is you know um discovered by the so called present day science is the only thing and there is no other way we can discover things so this is also a kind of faith we have lent our faith to one kind of exploration what else is science but an exploration based on data by the senses and reasoning by the mind so our faith is in reason and our faith is in senses if we really look at it no one really lives without faith it just that where we lend our faith so there is a kind of knowledge and we think that's why our moods move and we move by the moods and we think we are free this is the second issue about our subjective states so too with impulse and will this is the subjective side of reality so there is an objective side objects things things we touch sense feel there is an immaterial side of reality things we cannot touch sense and feel i mean we can feel them by an inner sense they are so very real intimate and why they come into existence why they are born where they go and all this mass of objective and subjective becomings that's the best word you know one can say because it's all the time emerging and changing and going somewhere we do not know into a whirlpool or a great uh, you know cosmic whirl and coming back to us as waves and waves and waves carrying us we do not know where and we are driven by all this in a great flux and flow of time what we call as ourselves now we identify with this now with that so it's so important to know all this because it concerns us most intimately i must know what drives me if i don't know what drives me i have no real control and no real mastery and no real freedom i may think i am free that's of course one of the greatest uh, i think it's not the world which is an illusion it is this which is an illusion that i am free and you know so terribly bound one little impulse comes and you know all intellectual knowledge is set aside there is a little story very interesting um a person came to a master and said master i bahut gussa aata hai mujhe why i'm saying in hindi because you know it has a meaning so it's not it's not that you know i get very angry that's how it is i get very angry but if i have to literally translate the hindi into english you would be see you know anger comes to me anger comes to me bahut gussa aata hai you know english language is very <laughs> hindi language is very interesting so the master say oh is it bring it bring it call it gussa aata hai bolao then no it's not like that you know it's not like that it can call it he said you said that it comes to you how does it come why don't you call it he said master you must be joking i am not saying like that he said what are you saying you say anger comes to you and then you say you cannot call it so that means it comes unasked uncalled he said yes now i it gets closer so what do you do with it somebody comes to you unasked and uncalled so you see there is a whole world in which we live and we take it for granted 
and we don't understand how it moves and what impels it. One reason is that we are too much preoccupied with just the external and the sensible. Those lines from Savitri, I think they are there in the brochure. Our eyes are fixed upon an external scene. We only hear the crash of circumstances, the passing wheels of circumstances. And since we don't understand why it has happened, we call it fate. So many times in life, I am sure in this whole hall, all of us, if we raise this question to ourselves, has our life followed a logical pattern of exactly the way I planned it? I think the answer will be universally the same. No, I planned it this way. Something came. And this something may be just something seemingly very insignificant. Shobindu says in Savitri, a casual passing phrase can change your life. Why we were at a particular point, at a particular time, we do not know. We think, like, you know, today, Govinda has very interestingly said, we are here. Why we are here? Well, I got a card. So we can go further. Why you got a card? Well, long back, you know, we came in touch with Professor Vyas. Why you came in touch with Professor Vyas of all the people? And why is it that coming in touch with him, you know, did something to you and you felt like coming? So many people got in touch. Not all may have been touched in this way. And today we are all gathered here. How it started? Why this journey started? Today we are here. Some of us may trace it 20 years back, 30 years back. And who knows how many lives back. There's a little story of Einstein going along with his friend and, you know, uh, suddenly, there was a low branch of a tree and he hit against the tree, the branch. So, his friend moved a little further and usual question, are you hurt and is everything okay and Einstein is as if transfixed. So, after a while he asked, what is it? Are you okay? He said, yes. So, what are you thinking? He said, no, I was wondering. What were you wondering? The whole universe conspired to create this one event. The whole universe conspired to create this one event. How far back we can go in time and space, then we will see the significance of a single instant. In Savitri again there is a line, thus is a word spoken from the heights. A light is shown, the ages toil to express. One, a single instant, is the cause of the years. One single instant becomes the cause of the year. And you know, there's so many stories. Someone came to Pondicherry because you know he got a shoe from Bombay Market and he opened the wrapper. And suddenly there was an article on Shurabindo uh, and you know he reads it and feels like going there. The shoe became a means for uh, another shoe which were inner shoe, you know wearing which he could reach all the way. It's so strange that so many of us all the while we experience these things. But we don't understand so we have a very nice neat enigmatic term. Fate, destiny. What is really fate and destiny, but a play of forces we don't know. And to this complex play of forces, to this complex web, we say karma. That's another convenient way. But you know, as we begin to understand the forces at play, interestingly karma begins to change.
So, you know, 40 years back, if somebody uh, lost his sight, your karma. Today, because you have nice, you know, science has mastered some of these physical forces, so you wear a lens and you don't say it's your karma. We say, well, this is uh, something which has happened and, you know, this also is karma that, you know, somebody helped you. But essentially what has happened? As we begin to discover the forces that are active behind things, and now we have discovered just a little fraction, and it gives us a certain degree of control over at least few things. So, uh, out of a, let's say, millions of forces that are active in the world, we come to know five, six, seven, and that also is a little gain. It helps me to control what I would have otherwise called destiny, fate and karma because I am aware karma is basically play of forces out of which the, the forces that emanate from me is one very strong determining factor. It's not the only one, it's a very complex play. And this is just scratching the surface of physical matter. This knowledge, the Vedic knowledge, also this knowledge is there in later tantras. This knowledge that now Shabindu brings in its detail and fullness. What does it reveal to us that behind this cognate physical world and the physical forces and energies that play within it, there is another subtler state. This is a gross state of things. And behind the gross, there is the play of the subtle. And behind the subtle, there is play of the subtler. And behind the subtler, there is the play of the subtlest. So the gross and the subtlest are linked through a series of, if you look at from this side, increasing subtlety of substance and if you look from the other side, an increasing grossness of the same thing. So when we look at life from that way, we see matter and spirit are two poles of one reality. That is the truth. We all read it. But this cannot become disconnected from uh, the moment we say this is an illusion, you see this is a big problem. We say there is only one reality without a second. Then how did this universe come into existence? It has to be part of that one reality. How? We may not understand. But this nutty problem has been done away with later uh, Vedantic thought by saying this is an illusion. Then in that case, what is the big deal? If this is an illusion, then who is really? I mean, you don't bother about an illusion. And what an illusion that it has so much power to hold than reality. So there must be some sense of purpose in it. It has power. Power cannot be just an illusion. So when we really look at life from that way, spirit becomes matter through it. But Shubhinda says an increasing concentration and condensation. Just as vapor becomes water and then becomes solidified ice. So it's the same reality. We can look at it from the reverse point of view. That when we probe matter, it resolves itself into subtler and subtler states. Till it becomes spirit manifest. In fact, this is the whole principle of yoga. You start from the gross. Let's take any process of yoga. Heart yoga, or bhakti yoga, or karma yoga. What is the gross state? The gross state of the body then all the bodily energies, if we can concentrate on certain points, key points, and through a process of concentration, reverse concentration, it begins to enter into subtler and subtler states. 
and this subtler state gives a great power on the cross because it's the anterior state it is the one which is more primal let's take for instance emotions emotions are uh, you know absolutely lost in gross things make them subtle how by concentrating on the subtlest on the one soul beloved and emotions assume a tremendous power the same emotion which is a cause of so much pain suffering struggle becomes gives us more and more delight anything that becomes subtler becomes more powerful bhakta is dances in ecstasy even when you know everything around him is crashing and crumbling how does he arrive at that state what gives him that kind of empowerment there so many instances i mean uh, uh, in the life of uh, great yogis mystics and even those who were uh, relatively not uh, arrived at that degree of uh, inner realization that even in the most difficult of circumstances they could remain in a state of inner delight which was undisturbed how could they arrive at that freedom of emotions simply because from the gross emotions became subtle from the subtle they went to a subtler state till they could find union with the subtlest we have in the life of shivendra himself that he was in the jail and the british sword you know dangling over his head uh, the one most dangerous man in india that is how you know it was flashed so everything uh, was uh, tried to make sure that he is convicted or you know sent to undermans and what was sure in the experiencing there he he has written a very beautiful book um, uh, you know it's, it's now a book but it was an essay originally in bengali then translated in english kara kahani tales of prison life if you read it it will strike as a piece of wonderful humor and he is describing about a single bowl that he had which was used for multi purpose bowl and uh, later on he was to recount like uh, in a single aphorism very powerful aphorism that uh, god uh, no uh, I, they sent me to a prison and god came there and turned it into an ashram so that was the first ashram the first ashram is not pondicherry that is the first ashram in a prison he found why because he could experience behind the most material objects behind the bar behind the you know in the car in the blanket behind the tree everywhere he saw krishna vasudev and his arms enveloping him so even while he was there he was in a state of inner delight so it's a it's a reality which one can experience and people have experienced so how is it that um, we don't experience it because we are right now in a very gross state same thing with knowledge when knowledge turns beyond just the knowledge of the sensory objects turns inward it becomes more and more powerful more and more all comprehending more and more all embracing it enters into a subtle state and it can go to that point that one can know about everything in the universe just because one is in that primal state which is within everything before the state of division and differences there is a state of knowledge from which the whole universe is immersed and if one unites with that state one can know that's how mystics know about what's going on in others because they have entered that state of knowledge which is the source and seed of all things so also with will so behind this cross there is a subtle state 
and this subtle state is normally comprised of uh, the, the life force, the life energy and the mind force and mind energy. It is also a state of ignorance, but it has tremendous power over matter. Today science is discovering this. After so many years, it's come to that point that actually it is not matter over mind, but mind over matter. And mind matters. So whether we say matter never mind, but mind does matter. You know? It's famous Bertrand Russell's paraphrasing. And so mind matters because you know it's a subtle state. It can influence gross matter. If we can arrive, but it's not a wishful thinking like in popular, you know, uh, pop explanations of this truth. So in that we say, you know, you are what your dream and dream and will come true. It's not like that. This mind, we have to reach that point of mind. Mind is what? It is subtle matter in its subtle state. And if that can be activated, if we can more and more live in that, then we can impress it upon physical matter and even change a almost sudden event. And it, it can happen in many ways. You know, something which is just going to happen, it can be changed because uh, this mind has a greater power over matter. First to begin with within our own bodies and then it can extend onto events and circumstances outwardly. There are instances where people have seen a dream and they have been able to change what was going to happen. Simply because they saw it in a dream. There is a very interesting dream which um, mother has narrated about someone who saw. That he saw, you know, just to see that how before things happen on the physical plane, they take place on the subtle planes. And when we become conscious on the subtle planes and on this play of subtle energies and forces, how much empowerment, how, you know, it can give to us. So she recounts of a dream that's um, not, not her own but somebody else's that uh, he saw, you know, that uh, a man came to call him and uh, he told him uh, there was a coffin and he told him to lie down in that coffin. So, you know, he was obviously, it was very strained and he woke up. Next day, morning he got ready and as he was coming and uh, going to take the lift, he saw the same boy of the dream asking him to step into the lift. And suddenly the dream struck him. So he changed the direction, he you know, he suddenly got a shock of his life and he preferred to go by the staircase and the lift did crash. So it's like, you know, if we become conscious, more and more conscious in handling things, circumstances, events, there are so many subtle indicators that come in our life and we cannot, uh, you know, because we are not attuned to, we are only tuned to read the gross things. when. Well, for instance, when we are actually ill, uh, that's why there is a very nice term, uh, maybe we'll talk about these things tomorrow, uh, you know, there is illness and there is disease. I like the word disease because it dis-ease. You are not at ease. Something is telling us things are not right. But, and during that time, many times we go to a doctor and doctor finds nothing. And yet we insist. Then, you know, if you keep insisting and he finds nothing, he will tell you, you know, I think you need to consult a psychiatrist. <laughs> of course, here they would say much more openly. In India, they will say, you know, I know this doctor, he's very good. So many times they send to me without mentioning that I am a psychiatrist. <laughs> Why don't you talk to him, you know, he's in the ashram and a nice doctor. They would not say. But actually it is not true. There is something going wrong. It is not manifested on the physical, it may never manifest on the physical. 
for various reasons because of the constitution because of a play of factors heredity genetics many things but there is something which is not at ease inside and one needs to find it and if one doesn't find it in time doesn't work upon it then it precipitates on the physical and then we have one of the two choices either karma my destiny <laughs> and go to a soothsayer or a you know babaji or some somebody or one goes to a doctor and the doctor gives another pill and this is the way we continue so basically the more we enter into a subtle state mind state and we have to become conscious which means there has to be an effort towards that to become aware of life energies one of the things that yoga does is makes us more sensitive to these energies which are at play in the universe and people become very conscious they can become so conscious that uh, and it changes the whole panorama in a sense actually ignorance is uh, truly bliss because uh, you know one one can remain blind to many things if one becomes aware of those things life may well be frightful not blissful because uh, you see one sees a kind of interchange of forces one sees the kind of thoughts that go on in the mind one sees all that goes on inside a human being there is a little story of the the mother once she was you know some crows had uh, dropped uh, dropping she was cleaning you know in in the balcony through which she used to come and give darshan and one of the disciples rushed to her mother give me i'll do it so mother said my child this is nothing you don't know every day how much i have to do the inner cleaning in people <laughs> this is nothing it's just a little dropping of a crow how much mark people carry thank god we don't see it because we see appearance and appearance is always very nice what with dios and you know well dressed and demeanors and manners so we don't see the muck that is within us and all around us and it's a kind of grace otherwise life would be frightening so along with this kind of a knowledge there must also be a solid foundation otherwise people break down so that's why in yoga the first thing that is taught is equanimity <laughs> if you are not equal equal minded you can really be frightened with the sudden scepter that begins to appear but nevertheless there is a way of knowing things which is other than the physical and just as there are gross physical senses there are subtle physical senses in fact to begin with well the way divine experiences and senses the world these very senses become gross 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 till they enter into matter and matter is like a blind wall all around so what we see is actually um, completely it's a veil we never see reality because these senses are so limited but they can be awakened it's a common experience of yogins that as they grow into the inner life the subtle senses open they begin to see what we normally don't see they begin to hear what we normally no, don't hear what cadences of music every plane is accompanied by a certain rhythm yes that's <laughs> and <laughs> every activity is accompanied by a certain kind of music i mean music it can be a discordant note or a concordant note and purely on that basis one can understand things and people used to go to mother she would say my child i see the vibratory mode in which you are coming it's that's enough for me i don't have to know the language there was that incident where somebody suddenly caught hold of mother on the road and poured out you know half an hour talking in tamil and the mother is responding and 
it seems she is understanding everything. So Amrita was himself a Tamil he, and he heard everything and he said, Mother, you know Tamil? She said, my child, do you think I have to know Tamil to understand? <laughs> I understand everything. Because we begin to understand life based on the vibrations of consciousness which are behind this cross matter. Not only we begin to understand, we can manipulate it better. We can sense things before they are happening. We can, you know, even understand our own inner state much better, whether we are tuned rightly, tuned wrongly, purely based on this inner sense, which is more of the nature of a subtle sensation. And we can go still further. So everything that comes into gross level, you know, comes first in the subtle state. Uh, let's take another couple of examples. Illness, before we fall ill or when we fall ill. Uh, has anyone noticed that when there is a viral fever, very often what kind of suggestions come into the head? Very interesting if one observes it. What kind of suggestions come? Why they come? There is no reason. It's just a fever, you know, 100, 100, 200, 300 and everybody tells you it's viral fever and you'll be fine. But the suggestions that accompany a fever reveal the nature of the forces that have gone into making of the fever. And very often, purely by these suggestions, one can know what kind of illness that is accompanying. So there is a whole science of this inner reality. But mind is not all. There is something still deeper, still higher, which we, we are not even aware of. At least we are a little bit aware of what goes on in our uh, life world for instance, we know most of the time we are thinking about food, that's <laughs> common knowledge and we know a little bit about what goes on in our thought worlds. With a little practice one can become aware. But we don't know what is behind thought, what is pressing through thought. Thought itself is a vehicle. If we really go into the deep depth of Indian thought, we will see that thought is a vehicle, it's a subtle vehicle. Word and sound is a cross vehicle. Subtle vehicle is thought. And still behind thought, if we split thought, we will see that there is something which is using thought as a vehicle. That's why thought is such a power. Through thought we can communicate. Through thought we can influence things. It is not just a wishful thinking. Because thought is a power. And if we know how to use thought to direct mind energy, it's, it's a vehicle. So, you know, we want to send mind energy somewhere else. We need to use a vehicle. If I have to go from here to there, I can go walking. I can take a car, I can go by rail, I can take a flight, so many things. So the more uh, uh, energized our thought is, the more we can make it powerful. It can be made a wonderful vehicle to go across and reach out. That's why this is a whole uh, thing which is used nowadays, thankfully thought formations, visualization, basically thoughts can give form to a certain reality. They can actually mold physical reality. Though it's, you know, the difficulty is physical is gross, so it resists, but thought is subtly more powerful. But here the, this resistance is more, but the two can work together and eventually it can impress itself upon matter. But higher than thought is the spiritual, a higher consciousness. And if one can bring that into play, it can change the course of things. So in other words, there is a levels and levels of determinism. Normally we say fate is fixed. Fate is not fixed. Nothing is fixed in this world. Absolutely nothing. We choose to remain fixed. 
or rather we'd like to be transfixed. If I'm in a prison, then somebody else does everything for me. But we can understand what happens on the physical as a play of various levels of energies and determinism. And a simple example is that if I take a piece of chalk or a pen and just leave it, it would drop on the ground. But even as I leave it, I put my hand and take it to the other side. I have brought in another level of determinism which has cancelled the first effect. So in this whole world, there is a play of determinisms coming from different planes of consciousness and they can cancel each other. Till we go to the highest level of determinism, which can cancel entirely the entire what we call as a karmic consequence or sequence. And that is grace. Of course, that is not given to man to achieve. It's not something which we can achieve or hold, but it has its own wisdom, its own logic, if you may say so. But if we can link ourselves to it, it can cancel entire thing. So, there are levels of determinism and uh, uh, subtler states which we can ascend into and change and, you know, not only change our body at some point, because that is the first thing we have to practice upon. We cannot straight away start changing outer circumstances. But eventually it can compel even physical circumstances, even elements to change. We are going and the weather is bad. We are not helplessly compelled to be at the mercy of that. We can put in our bit, chip in our bit, even to change things if we like, even of a very gross material nature. Even accidents, the mother says sometimes one person is required in a whole group. And if he is in the right state, and almost certain accident can be averted, simply because one person was in the right state. Once a uh, big boulder had fallen, when many of the ashram students had gone out and you know, it didn't hurt anyone fortunately. So it was very natural for people to refer it to Mother, Mother Your Grace. She said, no, I want to know who was the captain. And then she says, you know, you were in an excellent state. Because of that, a whole tragedy was averted. Because you as a captain, in Ashram we have that, you know, we have uh, groups and then we have captains. He was in, one man was in the right state of consciousness. And that changed the whole thing. Simply because he brought into play a higher level of determinism. If there is an ascending level of uh, play of forces, there is also a uh, concentric play of forces. So each of us, by our thoughts, feelings, energy, impulses, will, brings into play in our immediate environment a certain kind of what we call today's aura, but a certain kind of energy or force field in our personal field. And this force field is constantly being acted upon by the environing consciousness, which is because of the collectivity. So it is very interesting, this collective consciousness. We go to a market, it's a very common experience which many people have. They go to a market thinking they'll buy nothing. And, you know, what happens next I will not say. Because in a market, Everything is vibrating with desire. Every object is as if saying, take me, take me, take me. It's calling us. And the consciousness that has gone into its packaging is also that it must be bought, it must be bought, it must be sold. So actually if somebody has a subtle consciousness, the moment one enters, one will actually hear objects saying, take me, take me, take me. 
So, because that's their function, and it has, they've been charged as if, like, uh, you know, uh, incantation by some priests. They are charged with that energy. They want to go. They don't care whether, you know, how many dollars you pay. Their function is to make sure that they go to somebody's place. Man goes without thinking anything and ends up buying. The reverse also happens. A person completely entrenched in desire and you know that life of the market every day suddenly goes to a place where the whole consciousness is get over, get beyond desires, get beyond desires. The whole atmosphere is charged. Suddenly he starts wondering, what is my life? Why am I here? They say, there's a very nice uh, line in Tulsidas uh, Ramayana. I'll say in Hindi then the English part. Ek ghadi ya do ghadi adho me puniyad tulsi sangati sadhu ki hare koti aparad. A moment or half a moment even. Or fraction of a half. So tulsi is telling that even this much company of a saint and a sage takes away great burden of sin and suffering from us. Right? Because that atmosphere is so powerful. Saint doesn't have to say anything. They don't have to give lectures, you know. <laughs> this is a very modern concept that one must give a lecture. Because we are so closed everywhere that except for things coming through this uh, idiot box, you know, that's not an idiot box here. We don't receive anything. <laughs> we must hear in intellectual words, certain body of, then you know it will go inside, become a khichdi and then. If we were open like this, it doesn't matter. One doesn't have to speak anything. Shubhinda never spoke anything when people went past him, darshan, and one moment people would stand. And that is transformation if one wants. One moment they would stand, that too, ten feet away. And uh, nothing. That one moment they would come away. And people's their lives were changed. That one moment. People have gone with all kinds of thoughts and they have got changed. There is a famous example of Singapore uh, president. Uh, C.S. Nair, yes. Yeah, Devan Nair. So he was standing in the queue for Mother's Darshan and uh, you know, he was getting jittery and fidgety. After all, he, he should be given priority but you know, he is in the queue. <laughs> Mother is taking her time, she is with a child and she, what was she doing with the child, cleaning her dress because you know ink had fallen and she was playing so after you know and by the, by the time he has seen things around so uh, he is thinking what shall he tell the mother and all kinds of thoughts are coming into his mind so one of the thoughts he has in mind well uh, you know I'll tell her that um, you are doing a good job <laughs> he has actually recounted the story that I thought yeah, I looked at the ashram yeah, you are doing a good job so he thought you know maybe he he may have thought, I'll add, keep it up, and if you need any help from me, you know. He says he went with all this. Then he looked at her, everything vanished. He just sat and he said, I don't know why I did this, but put his head on her lap. <laughs> that why I have done this, is all this vanished. You are doing a good job and place and the jitteriness, fidgetiness. I think everything was worth it. For this one moment lived the ages past. The world now throbs fulfilled in me at last. This is how 
one experiences. So there is an environing consciousness and there is an individual consciousness and they interact with each other. That's why in the Indian thought there is so much emphasis on satsang and also on dussang. That's why Guru Nanak says, what is the first uh, thing one must do? Sadho manka manatyago kam krodh sangati durjan ki tase din bhago. Why? Because if one is in the company of uh, those kind of things, one is full of those kind of things. One can't help it. This is the law. These are certain laws which we don't know. We are taught everything except how to live. That we have to learn from much later when we are sick and you know, either we are losing our head or losing our heart and then we learn how to live. But it's very simple. Law of vital interchange. The mother says that, uh, you know, and, and it works even with matters. You know, if we occupy a home or even matter, it, it has an influence. Shravinda says that because all these subtle states are within gross matter, he says that if a yogi handles a sword, because there is mind inside even that matter, he can say what kind of things have been committed with it. Because simply because uh, mind is there and it has received the imprints, but in a very very subtle state. So sword cannot say, but it can also speak if we know how to listen. If we handle it and touch it, feel it, we can get what it has been used for, whether for good purposes or bad purposes or whatever. So everything, objects, people, there is something called as vital interchange. We don't know that when we meet people and are very close with them, even when we you know, share a meal with them, we actually not only eat food, we eat consciousness. That's why there is a very interesting word in Sanskrit, ahar. Ahar is not just taking food. It's taking consciousness. So when we eat food watching TV, we are not only eating food, but we are also eating that tears. Most of the time people like to watch soap operas. They're not, you know, it's like we are not happy till we experience some suffering. So, you know, since personal life is comfortable, I must experience some suffering there. You know, how the mother-in-law is treating the daughter-in-law. Oh, see, she's so cruel. Well, my mother-in-law is nice, so I must find somebody who is cruel at least, no? And then you feel full. Yes, today my meal was good. Because I could curse somebody's mother-in-law. And all these atmosphere we carry and it interacts with this whole universe. And so with a group life, there is not just an individual interchange. Mother used to say, you should be very, very conscious when you take to inner life what kind of persons you are meeting with. Sometimes he says in one hour you can lose what you have gained over a week. So much we have to be conscious. Even a room where we are sleeping, with whom we are sleeping, what kind of atmosphere has gone in. So it was so, it's a whole science and art and commerce of life which we have lost. And Shubhendu reveals it at great length that vital atmosphere and especially you know in what we call as uh, Govind was pointing out the most abused word love making you know because there is a complete interchange of vital energies and that's why one has to be very conscious whom to choose as one's partner because otherwise you know uh, if especially when one is leading an inner life if one is not leading an inner life it's just the normal run of the mill then it really doesn't matter because you know it's all animal into animal into animal, <laughs> ad infinitum. But the moment one begins to lead an inner life, one has to be very conscious because one can lose a lot 
through one little moment of interchange. That's that's why in the ancient Indian thought we had all this, you know, the fire and around which they go together on all the planes of existence. Because they must walk together, otherwise one will pull down the other. Simply because they are living together. If both do not progress together, it can create chaos and dislocation in the life. It's, it's normal. So these are based on a subtle laws of life which we don't understand. And so also there is an environing consciousness, a group consciousness, a national consciousness. We can enter into countries and feel a different atmosphere. Even before we have actually seen anything, the moment we enter we feel it. It is something very different, something unique. Because over a period of time, a nation, soul, creates its own force field, energy field, environment and one enters into it and receives it. So there is a whole concentric expanse of consciousness just and it can go on to a global consciousness. So whether we like it or not, the world energies influence us. If the total totality of the world is in a certain state, we cannot help it but drink that poison or that amrit, maybe one day the whole world will be so beautiful that we'll, the very fact of being born here, mother has said it will be so. But right now she says, my child, you drink poison by the very fact that you breathe this air. And that's why in Pondicherry she created this place where she said, you know, here in Pondicherry, you cannot breathe without breathing my atmosphere. And she says it saturates right up to 10 kilometers up to the lake. And many people have this experience. Uh, first time when I went to Pondicherry, I didn't know anything about it. And I felt I am breathing grace. I wrote a poem. I thought it's a very fine sentiment. And then I was told Mother has actually said that. Because she wanted one place where none of these kind of forces can really, they will enter. But they enter and they are annulled. Otherwise in this world we breathe poison. So how much conscious we have to become not only of our individual consciousness but of an environing consciousness and create force fields. It's a whole, whole science waiting for our exploration. And this whole interaction and interchange. And then there are two more elements in it which are the last links of the this chain of events, chain of things. One what Shurabindo has said and modern psychology recognizes, but in different ways, the subconscious. Other than these physical energies of physical matter, vital life planes and mind planes and spiritual planes, there is something like the past energies and formation which are lying within us. And they constantly hold us and act upon us. That's one reason why illnesses become chronic. Even if we don't want, it is there gone inside. We have a label stuck to us. Even they advise, keep a card that I am a diabetic. So after a while I must give my identity as a diabetic. <laughs> so you know it has gone on one side, I am being helped, on the other side it has gone into the subconscious as a subtle fact. You cannot question it. So you know it's something which is uh, always acting, the subconscious and not only my individual but the subconscious of the race. Today we see, you know, that is coming up. All the problems of the past are suddenly coming up. Why? Because that has to be tackled at some point. And it's a very, very powerful, dark formation, if I one may say so, which holds an individual and a group life down because it doesn't let one go forward. 
it is the shadow which pulls down. In Ramayana there is a story when Hanuman is crossing across the sea, then there is a demoness who pulls down by the shadow. She catches the shadow and pulls down. It's a very symbolic story. That there is a shadow which pulls down. And you have to be really strong and one-pointed and focused to really conquer it. But more important, and that's the note we should really close this before we open for discussion, is that of all these things that are acting around us, within us, this whole ladder, mind energy, life energy, there is the energy of the future, not only past, but the future is pulling us. In the traditional karma theory, it is past leading to present. Shurabhinda brings a new dimension into it. He says it is not only the past which creates your present, it is the future which creates the present. The future and the past come together to create the present. We are not just helplessly caught to the past. If really this was so, none of us would ever progress. Because past is such a stronghold. It's because something comes from the future. Something new, something beautiful, something high, something vast, something divine. Which comes into a present and keeps pulling us. It is this which we have to activate. The more we look forward, the more we look up to that future which is unfolding within our lives, pressing upon us into the present, trying to precipitate, the more we read its signals. Shrivinda describes beautifully as the signals of eternity. In every life, we have these signals of eternity. Sometimes we catch it, very often we miss it. It is called as the hour of God. It comes momentarily. Suddenly, one moment we feel something very beautiful. Then years and years pass and we lose that moment. Then after decades, sometimes through much suffering and pain, because of all things, one thing is sure, if God has touched someone, or to put it more, uh, you know, mystically, if the future has touched someone, then whatever we may do, the present will never satisfy us. It's just not possible because it is thus. And a lot of suffering can be avoided if we just pick up that cue, that little signal that came to us like a flash. Future comes like that. It comes like a little flash. We catch it and we can it can uplift us. It can change us completely. And if not, then we have to go through a lot of cycle of all kinds of things. The whole world will conspire now to push us into the future. So we hold on to the present, present will kick us on all sides. So we will say, oh God is so cruel, how bad. But actually no, he is helping us to move into the future. He is leading us through a narrow gorge because, you know, we don't want. So all the doors he closes, one after another. Because he wants to point us to that one door which he opened, but we won't see. It's like, you know, when a door is open and we say, ah, oh, is it? Where does the door go? It goes to the future. I'm so happy. <laughs> We don't know what's there in future. So he says, Acha, okay, fine. What are you happy about? I'm happy about this. After a while that vanishes. Then we think, oh, there is another door. We try to go, it shuts itself. Then a third person we hold on to and the person turns so style. Everything is taken away because future has decided to come through that door. And we have to listen to it. If we don't listen, then again we have crashing wheels of circumstance. 
not because we, something bad has been done or we have done something evil, not at all, but simply because the divine has many ways of leading us. And one of them is when we don't listen to the flute on the fields of Vrindavan, then we have to go through the Mahabharata. So I'll close with this with few lines from Savitri and then we can have question and answers because that may be interesting. This is from the secret knowledge and I'm going to take out um, some passages from here and there. But all is screened, subliminal, mystical. In our present state of ignorance, all this appears very nice, but we don't see, we don't sense any of these forces. All is screened, subliminal, mystical. What does it need to know it? It needs the intuitive heart, the inward turn. We cannot know it till we are tied down to gross matter and its tyranny, which we call as pleasure. Matter uses us for our pleasure and we call it tyranny and we call it very nice. It needs the intuitive heart, a quietening of the heart and the mind, freeing them from the clutch of the outward and the appearance, the inward turn. It needs the power of a spiritual gaze. Else to our waking mind's small moment look, a goalless void seems our dubious course. Some chance has settled or hazarded some will, or a necessity without aim or cause, unwillingly compelled to emerge and be. So this is how it appears in our present state of ignorance, because we don't understand the play and the totality and the complexity. Our very being seems to us questionable. Our life a vague experiment, this soul a flickering light in a strange ignorant world, the earth a brute mechanic accident, a net of death in which by chance we live. All we have learned appears a doubtful guess, the achievement done a passage or a phase whose farther end is hidden from our sight. A chance happening or a fortuitous fate, out of the unknown, we move to the unknown. This is the first impression of life in our ignorance. And yet, we need not live in this state. So, this mass of unintelligible results are the dumb graph of truths that were unseen. Because we don't know the forces, so we don't understand life. We say we planned it like this, but it took some other turn. Why? Because we don't know the forces at play. So there appears an unintelligible result. That's why they say we don't understand God's play. The laws of the unknown create the known. The events that shape the appearance of our lives are a cipher of subliminal quiverings which rarely we surprise or vaguely feel are an outcome of suppressed realities absorbed in a routine of daily acts. Our eyes are fixed on an external scene. This is the problem. Absorbed in a routine of daily acts. Sometimes frightening. I mean, I have just finished 50 and I am sure there are many 
younger than me, many older than me. And if you really look back to a life, how many days we have really even tried to live consciously? Day after day rolls by the same routine. We get up in the morning and you know we rush to the bathroom and we rush to the office and we pick up, snatch a breakfast and you know we come back and we sleep off watching our favorite serial. I mean, what kind of life is this? Frightening. It's a prison. We somehow go through it, navigate through it, absorbed in a routine of daily acts, mechanical life, caught in the clutch of a machine. Our eyes are fixed on an external scene. We hear the crash of the wheels of circumstance and wonder at the hidden cause of things. Time to time to disturb this routine, actually to wake us up. An alarm bell rings. It's too harsh for our ears because when this alarm rings, all around us things crash. And then we wake up, oh my God, where am I? Why am I? Why all this? Why me? All these questions we raise. We don't raise it till something happens. Till then we take everything for granted. But when something happens, then we say, why me? So what is it? It's a kind of wake-up call. Yet a foreseen knowledge might be ours. If we could take our spirit stand within. God doesn't want to conceal this from us. We can know. We can become aware. We can live consciously in a conscious world. If we could hear the muffled demon voice. There is a little voice here which can give a precise indication not only of what to do, where to go, which turn to take. It is said that Socrates used to hear it and it's not, it doesn't choose pleasant. It chooses the good. So Socrates used to, to this extent that it would give him an indication, turn this way and he would turn that way. And when everything was arranged for him to escape, yesterday we were talking about it, he chose otherwise. His disciple has paid away all, he has bribed the entire group. They say that, look, escape. He said, no. Why? Because the indication he's getting from here is something else. How much one can go? The good rather than just the pleasant. Shreyascha, Priyascha. We have issued in his life when, you know, when he was in jail and, you know, everybody counsel and all this. He says, I don't have to give any counsel. Why? He says, because everything is settled. He sees the Vasudeva in all things. He says, I trust what he is going to, how he is going to lead me. Too seldom is the shadow of what must come cast in an instant on the secret sense which feels the shock of the invisible. This invisible felt like that. Suddenly it pierces the wall of sense and appears and then disappears. And we wonder, what was it? We are like living in a well and suddenly a bird crosses the sky and we say, what was it? Did I see something? But till I come out of the well, I cannot see anything. And seldom in the few who answer give, it comes to us, the future comes to us. Indications come to us, but we rarely listen. And seldom in the few who answer give, the mighty process of the cosmic will communicates its image to our sight, identifying the world's mind with ours. Our range is fixed within the crowded arc. Of what we observe and touch and thought can guess, and rarely dawns the light of the unknown.
waking in us the prophet and the seer. Close with this. If anybody has any questions. Please repeat your hand. Yes, please. Uh, I think we'll have to pass the mic. Maybe. Hello. Otherwise, we have to hear with the subtle senses. Yes. In Indian philosophy, Jain philosophy, everything, karmic philosophy and karmic thing is very important. Uh, where do you draw the line here? Yes. So, in any karmic theory, there is a lot of importance given to Purusharth. So, there is the element of Purusharth and we can put it in this way that if I have created what I am today, then by my actions today, I can change what may come tomorrow. So, this is one part of the theory that even from that angle, if we look, I am an important player in the field, a very important player. So, I am not bound to helplessly simply be at the mercy of karma. I am the one in my ignorance, I have created this bond and I by a knowledge can free myself. Otherwise, there would be no hope of salvation or, you know, uh, coming out of this ignorance. And there is this other aspect in Indian thought which is the grace, which is drawing in a determinism from a higher plane of consciousness. So, that's where we have the Gita. That it says, don't worry about karma. You are doing your karma, you are frightened, you are terrified, you are doing right, wrong, uh, this is out of this, this is out of that. I understand all this, Krishna says. And it's true, it applies in a certain way. In fact, Gita reveals the inner law of karma, not the outer. If you do karma in a tamasic state, your consciousness becomes more obscure. It's very simple logic. If I am more and more fixed with external and the, you know, simply the sensible world, then more and more I am at its mercy. So the consciousness becomes more and more obscured. It says if you do it in rajas, then you have buy one joy and get two sorrows free. Because, you know, it's an old deal. It's a very good deal because, you know, it's an offer divine is given in the beginning so that initially there is joy. And afterwards, you know, you get the sorrow. So, you realize that it can never satisfy you. So, it's a wonderful, it's a grace actually that it is so. It says if you do karma in a sattvic state, then what do you get? You get inner sukham and prakasam. Very interestingly, it's not an external reward. It's not that next, next birth I'll immediately, you know, get a very good job in the most upcoming company, you know, in India, Hong Kong or US. It says wherever you are, you will be in a state of Sukham and Prakasham because it's Sattvic Karma. And if you have done Karma is dedicated to the spiritual, uh, he says then, you know, very soon I will pick you out of this pit and I will liberate you and you will be born in a family of seekers. That's how it says. And so much so that it says even if you are in the darkest state of consciousness, if you remember me, he should be regarded as a Sadhu because I lift him out. And finally it says the master word, which is basically the same law of determinism. That doesn't matter, you think you are a sinner, you have done a lot of bad things and you are the worst possible person on earth. Maybe, but he said I am giving you a greater secret. What is that greater secret or the greatest secret? He says, Sarva dharman paritya So in the karmic theory there is a whole range. That my karma has determined my present is only one part of a large 
canvas. And we must take it in totality and even in that it is not an external result but an intrinsic thing. So if I do a deed in a state of um, inner vastness, then it liberates me from smallness and I feel happy. Whereas if I do a deed in a narrow state of consciousness, Mother says it's, it has the effect of like, you know, uh, smoke going on to flower, it shivels. So it is again a very logical thing that it's not the actual act, but the inner state that matters. So a person who dies defending his country and killing somebody because he has to defend his country, uh, they say that, you know, the doors of heaven open. Why? Because at that point of time, he's not thinking of himself. He's thinking that, you know, there is the nation and there are people who depend on this man's staying on to his post. So it's a, though in ghastly karma, ghoram karma, as the Gita says, Arjuna says, why are you impelling me to do this ghor karma? He says, this ghor karma, if you fall still, you, your gates to heaven will open. But at the same time, we may do the same karma in a very low consciousness, like a terrorist time, a sneak inside and just kill people who are, you know, no way connected or concerned. Then I am in that horrible state of consciousness because the same karma, the act of killing, has been done in a terribly, terribly low, ignorant, obscure and a dark state. So it is the state of consciousness which determines the karma and its effect and the results are also inner rather than external. Yes, please. Right now, if we look at the India, we are losing uh, hope that how is going to be the Jagat Guru? Can you give me some kind of indication about what will be the future of India? Uh, hundred years back, both Vivekananda and Shurabindo saw something very beautiful. Swami Vivekananda saw India in chains and he was very much impelled to free it. He saw the vision that, you know, in the Himalayas that she's chained and, you know, fallen and her robe is stone and all this. He gets, you know, almost infuriated. We know he was prone to Rutrabhav. After all, he was born from Shivazai. And then suddenly, the vision changes and she appears in a resplendent raiment of gold. And he says, you think you will liberate me? I have chosen and when I choose, I will liberate myself. So, you know, there is a thought from the future. And what does Shurabindu say hundred years back? The sun of India's destiny will rise and overflow India and overflow Asia and overflow the world. So, since the decree has gone and the word has gone, it will be. Now, only thing is, if we as mankind are receptive, especially people in India are receptive, it will be in a beautiful way. If we are not, we will have to go through the wheel of crashing circumstances. But the decree has gone and therefore it is going to be inevitable because it's necessary for the world, not because of India never rises for its personal glory, for self-aggrandizement. It rises to give light to the world. And already it has started, you know, Swami Vivekananda going and light of India is going to world and people coming there. So in a way it has started, but yet in a small way. And India must become sound on other footing so that it's not invaded again, you know, even before it gives the light, the whole thing is gone. But it will not be, despite all the darkness that we see abounding, because it is a thought from the future that has come. 
Now the moment thought from the future comes, it's like a decree. Now if it tries to deny it, it will be pushed into that through a doorway which is narrow. But it has to go through. I think life in the beginning he says unmanifested. Life at the end is unmanifested. So just in the center portion of the life is basically is called illusion. A second question to mind. You just mentioned about Gorka. Now if the cosmic forces or intrinsic forces is already decided that this particular person or his ego is going to do this Gaur Karma. Now why is getting that light suddenly? Yes. yes, very, very interesting. But first, the first part, uh, as you said, between two poles of unmanifest, there is this manifestation. So, actually manifestation should be more real, in that sense. It has its own reality because it is born from the real. Unmanifest and manifest are not two different things, but two sides of one reality. That's why the Gita, at one point, touches the door of the supermind. It doesn't enter into it, because earth is not ready. And one of the places where it touches the door of the supermind is when it says, Vyaktoham, Vyaktoham. I am the unmanifest and I the manifestation. Now the moment we look at that there is only one reality, then manifestations, realities drawn from the unmanifest, that which is behind this world is real because what is within it is real. What is the illusory part is that we experience it through the consciousness of the ego and the senses, which are limited. So what we see, not an illusion, but something which is distorted, not what it is. So we have to get rid of that, definitely. So in the original sense, when it is said illusion, it simply means that we are not seeing things as we should experience it. And that distortion is there, but that is because of the, you know, the play has to grow in stages. Not that it is non-existent, not that it is unreal, it has no purpose, no meaning. It is a purpose, meaning and a reality of its own, but we don't because we are limited and we are experiencing it through a very ignorant way. It's like, you know, if I wear dark glasses and look at life, it will appear different. If I wear green glasses, many colors will be blurred. So we have to get rid of the glasses and then experience. Then it has a reality of its own. And this reality is what? It is the expression of Sachidananda in forms because there is nothing else which is there in the world except Sachidananda. And we can even see it logically that everything in this um, cosmos is Sachidananda but limited. So it is a limited existence, it is a limited consciousness and it is a limited delight. And this limitation, because it always is constantly impissed upon by the all consciousness, all existence, all delight, therefore it turns its values into pain, pleasure, etc. Because this limited wants to experience the all, its basic nature is all. And therefore it experiences on the surface as the play of dwandas or dualities, because you know, that's the way it grows towards the all consciousness. But uh, the second part of the question that if everything is already decided, then where is the role? Because within us there is something. It is true that for a long time uh, we have an illusion of being free. But again, as I said in the cosmic play, illusions are also given with a purpose because step by step, stage by stage. When a child says, I want, to, uh, I want an aeroplane, 
little baby says. So parents think whether I should buy or not. Then you know, they have a discussion. Huh? This imaginary discussion. Uh, let him have it. You know, this way maybe he will get interested in little bit about physics. Maybe one day he may fly a plane. So they buy a plane. Say, beta, lay plane, lay. It is not a plane. I mean, it's just a little toy. But this toy is necessary. After a while, this toy becomes important to him and maybe it sets the cast for the future. It's like we use an idol or we, you know, uh, go to a temple and we have uh, baby Krishna's image. Now, it is only mud and clay. But it is necessary because through that we can go on to that which the image represents. So, when, even when we say the illusion, there is a purpose in it because nothing is created in this play without a purpose. So, in the same way, for a long time, I get an illusion that my will is free. And the fact is, no amount of intellectually knowing that you are, you know, cosmic forces are moving you, man will act believing that he is free in every sphere of life. It's just given. He is, will be pushed in that way. He is pushed to make choices. Of course, what choices he is making, there is itself a pressure from behind. But yet, he has to make choices because it is given to him. It's man's natural sudharma. But a time comes because within us there is the one who is free. Gita puts it beautifully, Manavitanu Ashritam. So it is given to man to be actually free. And a state of consciousness comes when we can actually free ourselves from the clutch of ignorance and participate in the play not as helpless serfs and, you know, bond slaves, but as conscious beings. Shobinda puts it very beautifully. He says, what I want in this world I have not come to, you know, create a religion or, you know, things like that. He says, I call no one and I have not come to create a religion. I have not come here to create mat and sannyasis, etc. I have come here to call the souls of the strong to the leela of Krishna and Kali. So this is the world created for. The moment I discover that, who am I but Mamevansh? What? Destruction can destroy me. Death will stare into my eyes and go away because it cannot destroy the indestructible. And then what happens to my body? The animalcules. But there is the self which is eternal, true, real, deathless. And when with those eyes we look at this play and stare into this world, then the whole beauty of the play changes. Everything becomes a dance of Krishna and Radha and Kali. All is an Ananda. So we are meant to play this play like that and it will be like that. We are still into the higher secondary process. <laughs> but very soon I do believe that large portions of humanity, who knows if already some of us here are not consciously participating in that way, would be free from the clutch of ignorance and play in this world as conscious beings as the divine plays with it. He plays with this cosmos. He plays in it and he is not bound by it. We say that divine is here in it. But we never say that divine is bound by this play. He is in this play. He directs the play. He moves the play. So can we because we are portions of his being. Paraprakriti Jeeva Bhuta. Who am I? I am the child of Paraprakriti. What Aparaprakriti can bind me? What Avidya can come over my senses and delude me? But you have to wake up to that reality. And in fact, he wakes up to that reality. But the day we wake up, then all is Krishna.
Any other? Huh. I, I can hear. Yeah, yeah. Our nature is from animal nature to supreme. And there is a gradual progression. Yes. And that progression, uh, is that true or? Yes. Uh, there is an ascent of nature, not only of soul. Thank you for, in fact, bringing out that very subtle distinction. Normally when we speak of the Vedantic idea of evolution is at least one line is that evolution of soul is taking place and nature is only like a, something which eventually has to be discarded. But science brings the other truth that even nature is evolving, forms are evolving, capacities are evolving. So Shurabindu brings the two together, but not because of a kind of mathematics, but because he has seen that truth that not only souls must evolve to their supreme status, param dhamam, but nature must also evolve to a divine nature. When we say divine is all compassion, it means there is a divine nature. When we say he is all powerful, all blissful. So it's a divine nature that we are speaking of. So even human beings can become all powerful, all blissful, all knowing. So even our nature, which is again a small, we also have a little knowledge, little power, little joy. It must ascend to its fullness. And we too must become what is called in the Gita and ancient scriptures as Sadharma Gati. So it is not just Saloke that one lives in the, you know, that plane where the divine dwells, but also Sadharma. My nature should become like the nature of the divine. It's very beautifully shown in the story of Indra and Kuts. So after the Devasur Sangram, Kuts uh, is the charioteer and he and Indra going together. Indra says, come on, have, us, have some good time at, you know, my heavens. You have been a great friend and, you know, worked in the Devasur Sangram. So Kuts says, fine. No problem. So on the way they are talking. Because now the war is over. And Indra is telling him what is there in heaven. Because you know he is going to a new place. He must tell him, orient him. So as he is going, Kuts is undergoing a change without realizing. So much so that he, when he reaches the gate of heaven, Kuts and Indra become same in their looks. And there is no way anybody is able to differentiate. Except Shachi. Shachi is not only Indra's consort, she is truth consciousness. So only the truth consciousness is able to differentiate who is the original Indra and who has become like Indra. So all our human nature has to become divine nature and so will it be because that is the journey. In, in Indian thought this is also there as a line of thought. But unfortunately as I said that that has been forgotten and another aspect has been brought forward uh, which is more metaphysical and which cuts, you know, does away with the problem of life by cutting it away completely. You know, like, you know, the moment I say everything is an illusion. But the problem of that is that then any effort is an illusion including a Godward effort. Because, you know, then nothing really makes sense. Because if it's really an illusion, what am I worried about? So, uh, but there is another thought in Indian Vedanta. And more powerfully expressed in Tantra, but Tantra fell into disrepute because of the left hand path. But more powerfully expressed there that this whole creation, there is a creatrix consciousness which is one with the supreme Shakti of Shiva. And it's possible to know and play in this world consciously. So that's the whole, if you understand the forces and just as the divine plays with this world. So our nature also has to ascend and become one with divine nature. And surely that is the destiny. Even in this material form, the very matter must change and partake of the divine matter. Thank you.
just uh, uh, if you can elaborate on when you mention uh, clutches of ignorance, as it's so true, but to understand maybe from the fact that ignorance is not a thing, but knowledge is a thing. Yes. Facing that it is the absence of one thing, and the nature and negativity also is not a thing. Only positive is a thing. Yes. Can you elaborate? Yes, so uh, ignorance is nothing but partial knowledge. So knowledge is true. When it becomes exclusive and partial, it becomes ignorance. It's like, um, you know, um, if I am working, let's say, that for a moment I am so much concentrated upon what I am doing that I become oblivious of the rest. All the rest is there as a reality. It is my background, my sustaining consciousness, but at that moment I am so much lost and absorbed in that which is limited. Now, if by some means I could become aware of a totality, then I would wake up from ignorance to knowledge. So ignorance is a partial knowledge, a very limited and exclusive kind of knowledge. And it affects our, you know, uh, even our working because it's not just knowledge, it's also power. So let's say when I am doing a work and I am completely absorbed in it. Now you see, even ignorance is a purpose because otherwise separate seeming things could not be created. So if I am absorbed in that and suddenly, you know, um, somebody very dear, very dear to me comes and stands. So first I'll be oblivious. After a while, maybe you know, if he, even if he were God, to make it you know more, you know, I would say please wait, you know, because I'm busy. You know, sometimes I fancy God comes and knocks at the door. What will be my response? I will say, look, I'm solving a mathematical problem, or I may say that you know I'm lost in the metaphysics of Vedanta. Please wait at my door. And he may say, look, I have come here. Vedanta is at my feet. You know, I am the origin of Vedanta. And I would say, please wait. But, but you know, it's like that focused thing onto one point. And if somebody dear comes to me, I am oblivious. Then after a while he calls me and I may just react sharply. Don't disturb me. I love the person. He is dear to me. But I am so focused that I am oblivious. Then after a while, suddenly he says, look, it's me. And I look up, oh, I am sorry. Now you see, it's that recovery of knowledge. I don't lose that. But, you know, now I have recovered a larger fullness. And so, you know, my response has changed. This is a very crude example, but nevertheless, ignorance is derived from knowledge, but knowledge limiting itself to the minutes, to the hours, to a limited space and time becomes ignorance. And that's what, you know, when we limit ourselves, choose to limit ourselves onto a very narrow time-space continuum, then we also share that ignorance. And uh, the other aspect that, yes, there is no eternal negative. That's a very beautiful thing, and uh, thanks for bringing that out, because this is a real, this is a real thing that... Negative is derived from the positive. There is no original black. There is an involution of light and that becomes black. So it is a fact. But in its effect it becomes real. So you know it's like there is no undivine. Eventually there is nothing undivine. But for a practical fact when a soul is caught in the so-called ignorance. It, you know when we are in the realm of relativity. Then it becomes essential and helpful to know the difference. You know, like the same story of Mahavad Brahman, that, you know, somebody, the disciple went out, it was Hirdai, Ramakrishna's nephew, and he had just had a wonderful lecture from his own, you know, um, mama or chacha, kaka, that look, I mean, all is one Brahman. 
So he goes out and they, you know, he is going out and there is an elephant coming from the other side, other side, so he decides to put his knowledge to test. You see how these truths are subtle and when grasped by the crude gross intellect, they can turn into, you know, total falsehood. So, um, he is standing. So the Mahavad says, are you mad? Move aside. So Hidda says, you are mad, you don't know, you are deluded. He says, how am I deluded? He says, you know, all is one Brahman. I have just heard from the great authority of none else but Sri Ramakrishna. He says, well, all that may be true, but I know this much that this elephant will throw you if you stand for one more second. And the elephant throws him. So he goes back and tells Sri Ramakrishna that what kind of knowledge you gave me? He says, you applied it half. So how? He says you should have listened also to the Mahavad Brahman. So in a field of relativity, the, the black and white, the dark and the bright side and the negative and the positive come into play. But it is true that one can go to a point where the two become one movement of one reality. And one must recover that not only in intellect but in consciousness. But we cannot, we can ill afford to uh, adopt that stand while we are still individually and collectively steering through this world. So both are true that, you know, yes, eventually there is nothing like a negative. But imagine the consequences if somebody, you know, takes that stand and, you know, he says, fine, uh, God is there in the brothel. It's true God is there in the brothel. It's absolutely true. And it's possible that somebody could be in the brothel and realize the divine. But for most people, it would be catastrophic. So one has to understand that practical sense. Yes. Yeah. The thing which you said, I will repeat it. Ah. Ignorance, that is Agnan. Yes. The word itself, the Gnan is hidden in the word Agnan. Yes, beautiful. So, so Gnan is there. Thank you so much. Jnana is hidden in Agnan. That's a very beautiful and original way of putting it. Sangyan, Agnan, Pragyan. There are different forms of Jnana. One thing I can add. Yes. Agnan is Arvindos Gnan. <laughs> so, so one, one realizes this Gnan. Ignorance will go up. Yeah. Angyan, Sangyan, Pragyan, they are all forms of Jnana. Yes. Namaskar. My name is Ashok Oja, I am a reporter and I really enjoyed your uh, provision or I don't want to call it lecture, it's like analysis of the Vedanta. But I have a question, you just said that uh, Swami Vivekanand and uh, Sri Aurobindo had foresaw the rise of India and that it will break out of uh, slavery and become awakened and enlightened the world. Today we do see that India is rising, but don't you think that it is in a distorted way? I'm saying this because one example is yoga that is uh, originated from the spiritual thoughts and kind of philosophy of life in India. In USA, yoga is a multi-billion dollar industry that doesn't care about philosophy, just care about the workouts. Yes. So how do you think, and in, your, in our own country, in India, uh, the same spirituality is being used for uh, money-making, all the materialistic goals. So how do you think that? Yes, you're, you're very true. It's very true and it's very uh, sad that, you know, these things happen. But the hope is that when things begin, all beginnings and first strivings are like that. God is a master player in the game. So when people don't, uh, you know, straight away wake up to the inner reality, puts a price tag on it. Says, you guys 
will practice yoga only for money, fine, start with that. So there is a very beautiful, some lines from Savitri which reveal this, that how everything starts from, uh, you know, a mixed thing, mixed baggage. But as it evolves, your observation is absolutely right, you know, that uh, though India is rising, unfortunately, even in India, it's a sad thing, there is a price tag, you know, if you um, go to see a Swamiji or a lecture, he's more concerned, you know, he's becoming like in, uh, in company. And uh, there's a lot of advertisement and stuff like that, and it's, it's very sad. But these are the first stirrings because all awakening is like that. And this is a very beautiful uh, passage from Savitri all our life starts from the mud and climbs to the sky. And love that was once an animal's wants, then a sweet madness in the rapturous heart, then an ardent companionship in the mind becomes a spiritual yearning for the one. The heart that loved man once thrills to the love of God. So you know it starts like that. So just as everything starts in a very small way and ends up, those first infant steps um, presage the greatness to come. So step is in the right direction but it is using wrong means but it's uh, you know moving in that direction. So I'm sure India has a future.